0: Uh, Our lecture tonight is uh, is ballooning, as you know. Uh, Dr. Janet Folks, she is a lecturer in aerospace manufacturing at Nottingham University. Um, She's also, that's her daytime job, as it were. She is a balloonist of international repute. She has won many competitions, and she's going to tell us all about it tonight. Janet. Well, good evening, and thank you for coming. Um, My first slide is not to do with ballooning. Um, I just thought I'd mention a little bit about my day job, Um, only to recruit anybody that's got any information on aerospace manufacturing, um, because I'm always looking for information for my students. But uh, this is part of some of my research. Um, I'm looking at innovative ways of using the water jet, Um, and so we do machining, cutting, drilling, and also coating removal. And one of the reasons I'm mentioning it is because uh, the government's just funding um, manufacturing. They're trying to get manufacturing research up and going. So um, we've just been given a project which is worth just under a million pounds for water jet research to replace chemical milling on aircraft frames. So that's part of, amongst other things. I do a lot of work for Rolls-Royce as well. Um, that's a composite fuselage taken from the Hawker Beechcraft, which is now Raytheon Business Jet, and they cut the windows out using WaterJet, and we just, we've just we got a five-axis machine, so that's my pretty things that I make with this uh, technology. And uh, we do a lot of other stuff, um, as i mentioned, so that's the WaterJet. I also work with lasers for something called additive manufacture. Near-net near shape manufacture is a big thing at the moment as well, and uh, we we do laser deposition, which is... Fun as well. And that was what my PhD was a long, long time ago. It was related to lasers in aerospace. And we just deposit things that's uh, powder onto, I and mean, you can use it for a pair of turbine blades and things like that. And uh, that's titanium uh, compressor blades or building up geometries. And that's a nice lump of titanium built. Um, I think it took 15 minutes to build that. so. And uh, as I mentioned at the bottom, the, uh, the initiative, which is a strategic advance to affordable manufacturing in the UK through leading environmental technologies, and it's called SAMULet. And I think you'll hear some press about that over the next couple of years. So, ballooning. Uh, setting the scene. Uh, I want to talk about a bit about hot air and gas balloons, because I think most people here are familiar with the hot air balloons. And some people from... Um, the past may have been seen gas balloons. We used to have gas balloons in England, but uh, it's very rare to see a gas balloon in England now. Some of the history. Uh, the first flight uh, was the Montgolfier Brothers, 1783, and the actual flight was from Paris. And um, um, then about, I don't know, a few days later, um, Charles, as in Charles Law, um, took off an, in a gas balloon. That um, the, the Rossi... Sorry, the... Um, the hot air balloon was the first one to take off and the Montgolfiers have the honor of being the first um, people to make the balloon for the first flight. Um, I'm into fabric and technology, so I just wanted to mention a bit about what they used. Um, for hot air, they had fabric lined with white paper um, and then coated with a layer of alum, and uh, this gave fire resistance to this layer. and um, the, the thing I said it was connected, sorry, the thing I read about it was connected by a, a network of string and held together about by about two thousand knots. Uh, the thing was that this uh, was believed to fly by um, the gas um, generated by making it very smelly, and um, uh, so they made the smelliest concoction below the um, the hot the, the the balloon, to make it go up. Uh, later on, they discovered it was actually the hot air that made it rise. But, so, the, not a very nice place to be around one of these launches in the old days. Um, then, gas balloons, as I said, was a few weeks later, uh, they came up with the gas balloons. And these are the ones that really took off in more senses than one in the old days. Uh, they were the ones that um, flew longer and better. So, There was a, something called the Aero Mongolfia. And uh, that was made of a combination of different things. But the interesting thing, I had the information that this one was covered with gold-beater skin, which was later used in the ballonies, uh, sorry, not ballonies, in the zeppelins. Um, but anyway, um, that was some of the background of the fabric of the balloons. So just to say about hot air balloons, this was one of the English, the first English, sorry, Great Britain flights. He was in Scotland. And uh, this was made by a guy called James Teitler. And you can see it's a whiskey barrel almost, uh, so it's very Scottish, and apparently he flew this. He didn't fly it very far, and for the information I've got is it went to 350 feet, and it flew half a mile. And, of course, people were still not sure what the effect of um, you know, flying in a balloon or flying at altitude had on people. So, um, he said uh, it was most agreeable with no giddiness. Um, also, apparently he was wearing a cork jacket for protection, so... Anyway, it's a very interesting ballooning history, but um, I won't go into that in great detail. Um, all to say that these balloons really didn't um, last very long. They ca- caught fire. They couldn't go very long distances. So in those days, the gas balloons really became more popular. And it wasn't until we got to the 1955 when this person, who's the person on the left of your scheme, was a guy called Ed Yost. Uh, the guy on the right is a guy called Joe Kissinger. I don't uh, know if anybody knows Joe Kissinger, but Joe jumped out of um, uh, a balloon, actually, um, at over 100,000 feet and set the, um, the highest parachute jump um, ever. Um, and it still, um, it still is, it's still the highest jump today. And he did it as part of the um, um, validation to see whether, you, uh, before, it was before you went into space, So it was a jump as part of those uh, seeing if people would survive from going up from 100,000 feet and bailing out. Anyway, Ed Yost in 1955 came up with a prototype where he put basically a, like not Bunsen burner, but something like that underneath a um, um, hot air envelope and he made the first free flight in 1960. And then he crossed the English Channel um, a few years, three years later. So roll on a good 40 years, and uh, we now have balloons, and this is just to mention, um, I don't know how many people know, but balloons are regulated and they are certified aircraft, so we have G numbers and we fly on G numbers. And they're manufactured and inspected to various civil aviation and now EASA standards. So uh, the balloon factories have to have the control, not quite as stringent as the aerospace manufacturers for engine parts, but st- we have to have the same traceability, etc. Pilots have a ish- CAA, or now European-issued, license. Um, we have exams, flight test, and a solo. And the exams are very similar to the PPL exams, except we do balloon systems instead of... Um, whatever you do for your uh, aircraft systems. Um, Safety factors are higher than in conventional aircraft. Um, Material and heat, we take things into different accounts on that. And also we have a G-loading on landing is also addressed. There is a test that they do with the baskets to look at the G-loading on landing, which, of course, we don't have much G-loading, of course, but... um, Apparently, they throw it off, a, I think it's a six-foot wall or something, and if it survives, which it usually does, then that's their test done. Um, just to go into it as well, that's a general assembly drawing of a um, hot air balloon, and it's all regulated, and that drawing is filed with the CAA and um, authorised. So, just to give you some idea. Uh, there's lots of technology involved and we're not talking about hot air tonight, so I just thought I'd show you some pretty pictures. Um, my students are going to be doing some work on the burner. Um, there's a lot of noise issues with cows running around with the burner because there's a high-frequency um, uh, sound that comes out which dogs can hear, so every time a, do- a balloon flies over, you'll find that the dogs keep barking, and, but we can't hear it. So. And that's to do with the flame and everything. And there's a lot of technology um, that goes on with the burner design. Uh, the top is what they call a parachute. It's like basically a valve in the top, and you can let out hot air from that. So, And that's just some more pretty pictures of uh, a balloon being deflated. And uh, I just had fun with a the thermal imaging camera. And Nottingham have now got one. So, And that's what they look like in practice. So this is the what you get if you want to buy a hot air balloon. They come up with some rendering of what you're... Um, uh, balloon will look like. So that's the University of Nottingham, which is the balloon I I fly. And This is what I enjoy doing. Uh, This is flying in the Alps. As you can see, it looks pretty much like the drawing does, so uh, um, that's really good. And the University, we're very pleased with it um, because it is quite an impressive logo. Um, that's me flying in the Alps. I was in the balloon, so unfortunately you can't see me. I have one of that, but absolutely amazing to fly hot air. Um, this event is every January, and um, um, we go to a place called Chateau Day, which is in the valley um, just down from Gustadt, and fly up the valley and across, hopefully, into uh, the different valleys around. And that's a picture of the University balloon. I think that's Lake Geneva to the right-hand side and just some more views. And I think there was a ski resort below. We went about, I don't know, you have to give clearance in mountains and so we could still see the people and uh, hear them on the ground. And that was just a pretty picture of uh, some of the trees with the snow on it and the river going down. Uh, We also have special shaped balloons, so, um, uh, and that's what the valley looks like. So if you go to Day in January, hopefully you'll see that sort of uh, view. I don't know how many familiar. If anybody lives near Bristol, quite often we have special shaped balloons down there. Um, Sometimes these land in fields near you, but uh, just... And uh, if Don Cameron was here, he could tell you all about the engineering that goes involved in design of these special shapes. And I always think it's funny to see a mouse flying in the mountains with you. And one of my friends flies a birthday cake, and... (laughs) I'm always impressed wherever he goes, I just see him heading off into the horizon and thinking I wouldn't go there in a normal balloon, and there he is in this cake, so the special shapes aren't that difficult to fly, but packing them up is the real issue, so. There's also something called one-man balloons, and this is me in a Russian spacesuit. Um, I didn't, I, I went to 7,000 feet in this balloon, but uh, um, I didn't go uh, to space in it. Uh, this one, they just, wanted, they just launched this balloon, and they wanted some pictures to show that it was a, a cutting-edge technology or something. So that's me in that balloon. There you go. And uh, the good thing about these ones is that you can put them in the back of your car, or you can thumber left home and get your car and put them in the, the car. You don't need a trailer and a lot of crew for those. So you can have, it like, a his-and-her balloon if you want to in your family. So, And that's me flying over Oswestry uh, in Shropshire. Absolutely beautiful day, Um, flying is wonderful. Countryside is absolutely amazing on these cold winter days. So again, hot air and gas balloons, so moving on to gas balloons. Well, there's three types of gas balloon. Uh, Pure gas, uh, Rosio, which is a combination balloon, and superpressure balloons. Um, I'm not going to mention superpressure. It's a specialized field, and the stresses in the fabric um, need to be really accounted for in those. Gas balloons, well, in England, the first flight in a gas balloon was really by this guy, Lunardi, and he took off from London, and I think he landed near South Mimms, at uh, one point in his uh, flight. And I remember he dropped off a cat en route. I'm not, not sure why. I think the cat in the basket wasn't very happy or something. I think he was fighting with a dog, actually. And uh, in those days, you know, they really didn't know. Um, they thought this, the air was like the river. So they thought oars would help them fly and move around and uh, they really weren't sure what happened to people so they kept on taking these animals, doing it like animal testing nowadays for space flight, and they took a pigeon, a dog and a cat, and all of them survived except the cat wasn't very happy, so. And always, you know, drinking while flying, well, they were all, everything I hear about the old days, they were always flying with alcohol, they were always drinking champagne or something in there, and Lenardi was no exception, so he became very cold, and so he fa- found it necessary to take a few glasses of wine. Anyway, he became famous because he had done this wonderful exploit and uh, this is a picture of the balloon which is in um, the Pantheon in London. So, So moving on to 1975, there was a bit more going on and uh, um, gas balloons became accepted and there was one particular flight of Blanchard and Jeffries, which went across the channel from uh, Dover to Calais. Um, And there's lots of interesting stories about this flight. I don't know how many are true. Uh, Jeffreys apparently put up the money for it, I believe, and Blanchard then decided that he didn't really want uh, Jeffreys on board, so I think I spelled Jeffreys wrong. Um, And uh, so he tried to kick him out, but Jeffreys wasn't having anything of it. Anyway, they got towards the French coast, and according to uh, the uh, story, um, they needed to throw out lots of um, uh, ballast, and they ran out of ballast, so they needed to throw out their clothes as well, so they landed Almost as naked as the trees by the time they got to the other side. Um, then we have Pilote de Rosier. Um, he became the first ballooning victim, and um, he attempted to cross the Channel in an bongolfia, which was this combination of, uh, of the hot air and the gas. The problem was, in those days, they didn't have helium, so he used hydrogen, and unfortunately, exploded, and uh, he got killed. Uh, but it's after him and, and that concept, because his concept was sound. It was just, unfortunately, the hydrogen did, didn't like having the flame below it, and um, um, they, th- those became the round-the-world balloons. Um, so round-the-world balloons, advent of helium, they came the Rossier design, and because you now, in a gas balloon, you have sand, and when you run out of sand, that's the end of the flight. In Rosier's you use the burner, and that you don't need to ballast them, and... Just to show you two of the round the world pilots, the people that made the round the world flight, I don't have, which is Brian Jones and Bertrand Picard. I don't have a photograph of them, but on the right hand side, Steve Fossett, on the left hand side, Pellin Strand, and they're doing some test flying. And that's the typical how a typical Rossi air balloon would work. You'd have the gas cell at the top, and the hot air cell at the bottom, and you have a burner. So at night, you'd use the burner to keep the hot air cell warm. And that's to give you some sort of scale of those things. They're really quite large scale. And there's a lot of technology behind them, and I'm not going to talk about that technology because I really want to talk about my my flight to Spain this year, or last year. Um, But that's the hot air welder. The seams are welded using hot air welding. Um, and all these machines, I, I um, spec'd and scoped for the company. I was working there. And I think within six months of not having any of these machines, we got the machines in, validated them, got them approved by the CAA, and got the aircraft built, which was quite a feat. And I didn't sleep much. Um, tensile testing machine, again, we bought this in, and it had an environmental chamber so we could test those seams in it. Uh, This is a helium sniffer which was specially built for this project. Um, I talked to somebody who had a mass spectrometer and they said that they could probably make it. So, we made sure that every seam was gas-tight. And we didn't want Richard Branson coming down in the middle of the sea. So, that's why we ended up doing this technology. Uh, All the electronics and everything was tested uh, in an altitude chamber. And um, uh, you sometimes need to be able to see inside. So, there was also a transparent uh, housing made for that tech chamber. So there's a lot of technology that went into that round-the-world project. Some of it knocked on and is uh, knocked onto the Beagle lander. Uh, They they ended up making some of the landing bags for that and some of the technology. Cargo lifter, airship, we also did some testing of the fabric for that. And and there's a lot of uh, spin-off things that they make today, like inflatable buildings in the company. So I can give you another talk about that another time. And inflation and pressure test, a bit like an aircraft fuselage get pressure tested, balloons get pressure tested, and this is uh, the, the um, around the world being pressure tested and carding to an aircraft hangar. So, gas balloons. Gordon Bennett. Uh, I don't know if anybody knows much about this, but uh, the Gordon Bennett uh, is the oldest air race in the world that's still running, I believe. Um, it was... It started in Paris in 1906, and it had 200,000 spectators watching the takeoff. And it's a gas balloon race where the longest distance wins, and it's the Great Circle. Now, as a blueness, this is the the race you aspire to fly in. So this is when I was, uh, I don't know, just got my license. This was the one I wanted to do. But you have to get a gas license, not a hot air license to compete in this race. And getting a gas license in England is very difficult because at the time, uh, there wasn't any gas examiners. So there there was one, but he he, he had just died, and they hadn't appointed another one. So... Um, the name, well, it comes from James Gordon Bennett. James Gordon Bennett was the son of the New York um, Herald. Um, um, well, his father founded the New York Herald, and James Gordon Bennett took over in 1866 and inherited his multimillion-dollar estate. But he was also very good as well, and uh, he was the one that sponsored uh, Stanley to go and find Livingstone in Africa. I think it was Africa. Um, um, he bred, bred, sorry, he uh, um, led a very playboy-type lifestyle, and um, but he was in, big into sports, and especially if they were expensive and um, not sexy, but uh, sort of a bit uh, like sailing or ballooning or motor car racing, and motor car racing in 1906 was just beginning. So he became a sponsor of these events, and he also, uh, the Isle of Man um, Bennett Trophy races are well-known, and... Um, there's a trials course named after him on the Isle of Wight, Isle of Man. Sorry. Anyway, from what is important to me is that he inaugurated this long-distance balloon race, and uh, it became the International Gordon Bennett Gas Balloon Race. As an aside, and it's not, uh, it's sort of related, um, was also the formation of the Royal Air Club, which I don't know if anybody knows about, but basically, apparently. Um, Frank Hedges Butler and uh, Charles Rolls and his daughter, sorry, and and Vera Butler in those days, um, went for a motor tour, but fortunately her car caught fire, so they decided that they would go for a balloon flight instead, and they went with Stanley Spencer, and uh, they decided to form the Royal Aero Club after this flight, and because Vera was there, they let women into the Royal Aero Club, which was in those days very unusual. But after that, uh, Charles uh, Charles Rolls was very, um, I guess he then ended up liking ballooning. And so he competed, well, he flew quite a lot of gas ballooning, but he then ended up competing in the very first Gordon Bennett gas balloon in Paris. And he came third, landing in Hull. So that's the connection between Rolls and gas ballooning. So just to mention... I've talked a lot about gas balloon, but what is it? Well, this is the retrieve in the old days, In 1896, the Royal Engineers were packing up a balloon and putting on their horses. So, present—that's well, my old car and the trailer on the back. So that's sort of what it looks like, landing in the field in France on this particular one. You need lots of kit. Um, and for this Gordon Bennett gas balloon race, because it's a long-distance balloon race, then they ask you to take some of the safety things that you wouldn't normally carry on a flight. So in the foreground, uh, we've got um, a life raft. And uh, in the foreground, we've also got the blue bucket. So the long-distance flying, I won't go into what the bucket's used for, but it will answer any questions anybody's got later. Um, we've also got oxygen and mass, and uh, that's a, that's a um, ELT and also an EPIRB. I think we took both on this last flight. So, And, and they're for emergency locator transmitter. So if you, f- you ditch somewhere, you can send them off and it will send out to the right frequency to get the um, rescue services to you. And they're, they're, they're taken on board as safety. Um, we also have some food and water and ready-made meals and wonderful designer clothes. <laughs> so um, In a hot air balloon, it's usually quite warm, but a gas balloon at night gets obviously quite cold because we don't have the burner. So you also need to be lightweight. So uh, the person I was with there was Anne Rich. Um, Anne doesn't have a gas balloon license, but she could fly with me because she flies aeroplanes and she has a hot air balloon license. So she came with me. Uh, Here we have these two, and those guys couldn't get off uh, uh, the ground at all um, because they're too heavy. Uh, I went to 22 and a half thousand feet in that balloon <laughs> and it's the same balloon so it just gives you an idea of like weight balance and what you can do with it so uh, I was on my own of course and, and I got a weight advantage over them so uh, we can also read maps there's a lot of map reading involved and there's a lot of um, RT and um, negotiation with airspace as well so just proving that we can read maps. Um, sand, yes, we do have sandbags. I've got a nice video of filling of sandbags. So if anybody wants to do that, then they're always welcome. Um, it's, um, there's also the basket. That's the sort of basket you have, and what they call the load ring. The load ring connects the basket to the, what we call the envelope, which is the top bit. So. And of course, you're flying in an international race, and we're representing Great Britain, so you have to have the British flag. And why go small? We go big? We like a big flag. and it 's actually very useful because sometimes you can 't see um, who 's which balloon. But believe me, with that flag, they know which balloon it is. so um, with hydrogen, uh, helium's very expensive, and uh, quite often, um, most of these races are on hydrogen. Sometimes they run on helium because if the hosting country. Um, can't um, has fire regulations or there's um, problems with that, but um, most often it's hydrogen, especially nowadays with the economics as they are. So. And that's what a typical gas balloon inflation launch field looks like. Um, lots of preparation, lots of balloons around and, and things. And I've got some more slides coming up on that. So. And you can just see the fill hose there. So that's coming from the tanker into the balloons. And um, there's certain fields in Germany where you go and they actually pipe hydrogen into the center of the field and then take off to the different balloons around it, which was always good except for somebody smoking around, so they do ban smoking. So. Um, there's- a couple of different types of balloons, but this is a traditional old gas balloon which is netted and there's certain advantages in this, but for the Gordon Bennett you want a balloon that's the lightest weight possible so you can go as far as possible because if you have a heavy balloon then you take less sand with you. And um, Here uh, we're trying to fly the longest distance so if you take more ballast the chances are you can go further. So um, that's a netted gas balloon and there's transferring the, from the get, the. Sorry, transferring the weight from the envelope to the basket is the critical point. And if you, we have what we call a balloon meister to help us with that. So. And uh, the balloon meister's job is not to lose the balloon, because you could lose the balloon at that stage. And Giles Kaplan's in the audience. is a very good balloon meister. So. And that's what the launch site looks like, typical for launch. So um, there you go. And just some more pretty pictures just to show you. And this, in this race, this wasn't the one I've just flown in, but uh, this was my balloon here, and I own that balloon. And it sits in a garage in Germany most of the time. So. This is, and I also own one of these balloons as well. I get them secondhand, don't worry. Um, and uh, this is in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. And here we filled on helium because this particular fabric... Um, It's a very lightweight balloon and very competitive. Unfortunately, you can't use on hydrogen because it generates a lot of static. It's one of the new materials. So, my aim is to find a lightweight material that's good for hydrogen. And in this balloon, I actually flew 2,400 kilometres to uh, Canada from Albuquerque. Um, Just pretty few. And takeoff can be day or night, typically in the Gordon Bennett it's night. And one thing in this photograph, we have a big bucket here, but I had a male co-pilot. Here we have a a tracker, and that tracker sends a signal back. Um, We're not allowed to tamper with that uh, at all, and that's how the race gets recorded. Um, This was the high-split forecast uh, for this particular race um, on the day in 2005 from Albuquerque. So we took off here and we we did actually track pretty much up here. We landed somewhere around there Um, and uh, in Canada, which is quite a nice flight, but again, another story. Uh, Weather maps, um, we're always doing this sort of forecasting and uh, looking at the weather, and so that's what sort of weather maps we get. And just to say that uh, this year's Gordon Bennett is going to be in Bristol, um, and it's the first time ever it's been in the UK. And that's because England won it in um, 2008. Um, and it used to be every year, so that uh, if you won it the previous year, you host it the next year. But they've decided because it costs so much money now to give the host country two years. So David Hempelman Adams won it uh, by going the furthest distance in the Gordon Bennett in 2008. So England's hosting it. And it's going to be the first ever Gordon Bennett gas balloon race held in the UK. It's on September the 25th. It's a Saturday night. And it's organized by a committee which is authorized by what we call the British Balloon and Airship Club, the BBAC. So uh, it should be spectacular if you can get to go and see it. Just to show you, flying from England, you can get forecasts which can go interesting places. So, I've always wanted to go to Russia in a gas balloon, but I haven't made it yet. Uh, and Russia is closed, usually, for Gordon Bennett. But, uh, and what they can do is, using this uh, model, we can predict where you're going to go if you go at certain heights and do different So So, I'd like to talk to you about the Gordon Bennett in Geneva this year, well, 2009. And this is the flight that I've just done. Again, there's a high-spit model, and this was a competition area as well. (laughs) So the interesting part here is this is Africa, and it's out of bounds. And um, you can see here, if you can avoid this area, you can go to Turkey. So when you look at this uh, forecast, if you take the low-level route, you'll end up sort of wandering down here. If you take the middle route, you'll come this way, and if you take the high-level route, you could get to Turkey if you really sort of um, try. So, um some of the balloonists decided to uh, do different things, and it was just later on the strategy um, um, just to um, I'll tell you how it goes in a minute, so. So, you need lots of support, so that's us um, at, uh, it's in Geneva, we're sitting there trying to decide what to do. We did have a ground crew um, um, back in England who I could phone up to get some weather advice because trying to get on the internet when you're in a balloon is almost impossible and if you can phone somebody up that's on the internet and can sort out the weather and, and filter it for you, it saves a lot of time, so... Uh, This is the launch field in Geneva. Again, nice green field, and uh, we weren't allowed to drive on there. We just had to to carry the, the, or pull the trailer on there, dump the things out of the balloon, and that's ready. After preparation, um, it's laid out, ready to fill. This is what they call a quick fill. It's different to the netted balloons, so this one just fills by putting um, uh, the hydrogen in, and it will go upright immediately. Um, There's the fill hose ready. The netted balloons get filled first because they take longer. We're waiting for our turn because the pipeline can't fill everything at once, so you have to wait for your turn. And the only interesting thing is in these balloons, they don't have the traditional valve that the, uh, the old netted balloons have. We have what they call a parachute valve here, and that's basically a hole in the top of the balloon, and it's actually sealed by the pressure of the gas inside it. And there have been some interesting bits about the design because, of course, these balloons don't often fly for three or four days. They go for normally an hour's flight or, sorry, goes for a four-hour or a ten-hour flight. What they did discover with one of these balloons was that they went for a long flight and the pressure didn't keep that valve sealed. So when they got to about two days into the flight, the balloon started leaking because that pressure wasn't high enough on that balloon. So they had to redesign it. It works now, I can testify. Inflation starts, so that's the helium hydrogen going in. Then it fills up, and there is a video clip on on YouTube, which I'll give you a reference to at the end, and you can see how this inflation goes from being horizontal to vertical. So it goes from being that, and and it just flicks up uh, to being like that. And that's a picture of it being almost full. And that's ready to go. And it also on this one, if you notice, what we call appendix, there's a hole here. This is the filling. We, we've not closed it, but we've just sort of half-sealed it. We've pulled it up uh, to stop the air mixing into it. But when you take off, you have to make sure that's open. Because they've filled them completely, as the balloon goes up, the gas expands, and it will come out of the bottom. So, um, in the old, sometimes if that sticks, then um, you can have your balloon explode, which is the last thing you want. So... Um, There's a few where your Bloom Meister will make sure when you're taking off that that is open and you do as a pilot as well. There's some more pretty pictures from the launch site. Beautiful weather, beautiful day, we're very fortunate. I hope we get the same in England. Um, That's Anne and I, that's the photograph on the flyer. We've got so many sandbags on there just because we're not going to fly with all of those but we we have to keep the balloon stable during the day. There's gusts going around and the, the sand adds extra stability. Uh, That's the sand holder. We really do fly by just throwing sand out. That's all we do. Um, To come down, we vent the hydrogen or helium, um, and that's how we fly. Radio, transponder, battery, and oxygen. We have to fly with all of those, and unfortunately, they're not pre-installed like they are in aircraft, so we're always making sure they work. So... And the carrying batteries for this is actually one of the and solar panels to try and because you want lightweight, you don't want to carry too many batteries, and you want to be able to recharge in flight. So uh, that's the bed. So um, and a backup radio, an icon backup handheld. Oh, and just uh, go back to that one. The that there is a flap, and the flap means that you can put your feet out and lie flat along here. So ooh, it's very comfortable. Um it's a final briefing, so it's eight o'clock in the evening. Um, everybody's there, and that's David Hempelman Adams. He was the person that won it the right to have it in England. He won it two years ago. First English person to ever win the Gordon Bennett. And he's a very famous explorer. Uh just so Um, You can see Geneva's got very nice weather, so you've got four knots in Geneva, so in perfect launch conditions. We're going to go to Marseille and uh, Montalemar, 30 knots, 38 knots, so uh, not quite so good down there. Um, And they were saying that the Rhone Valley had got a mistral in it, so um, uh, it was just developing but wasn't going to be fully developed when we flew. So we decided to to fly that trajectory down the Rhone Valley, ending up to be near Marseille in the morning and they said it shouldn't be too windy near Marseille. Um, that was the site at night. Um, more pictures. Anne in her wonderful designer suit. And, and this is, we use this eventually as a sun shield um, for, because during the day it actually gets very hot in the balloon. So, And almost takeoff time, and this was takeoff. So we took off at 11 o'clock in the evening on uh, Saturday the 5th of September. I'll just play you a quick video. Oh, no. Um, no. Maybe I won't play you the video clip. Maybe I'll do it at the end. I can't see. No, okay, I'll do the video clip at the end, sorry. Um, Geneva by night. Absolutely beautiful. After all the preparation, taking off and flying is amazing. And believe it or not, next morning uh, we had an eventful night going through Grenoble and over some other Leon airspace and everything, and we came down this valley here and we aimed to come out here. And we have a decision here that we don't want to land, well, We had to decide whether we're going to land or fly through uh, the next day. And we were in good shape to go out to sea, but you have to make sure that you are in good shape to go out to sea, have enough ballast, have enough food, the balloons not leaking and things. So we had a a decision whether to land. um, And notice there's a wind farm here, which is always not a very good place to land near wind farms normally. Um, But anyway, we decided to carry on out to sea. Um, that was uh, sunrise over the French coast, so we could land, um, but we've decided that if we are going out to sea, we've spoken to our Met people, and they say we should be able to get back into land. It'll be slow over the sea, but we should be able to get there. And that's just another pretty picture. And the decision, this is the final point. When we get to here, we can't really go out. or uh, no. And that was a Swiss balloon that was quite near us as well, and they went out to sea too, so... So, this was our last view of the coast near Bezier, uh, 8 o'clock on the Sunday morning. And that's where the star is there. And as you can see, we then spent we have come down the Rhone Valley and then going out to sea. We decided to go out to sea. And um, we spent the next one and a half days getting back into land. <laughs> but it's Sunday, so we had Sunday lunch. So, <laughs> that's the Lancashire Hot Pot. Um, and how we do it is, uh, we have a heater pack, and it heats up. Um, we put water on this uh, pack, and that heats up whatever's inside that bag. So, and not quite the Sunday roast. Um, Sunday evening, uh, we're still over the sea. Uh, nice sunset, and lots of balloons below. Sorry, boats below. Um, and it's very nice because it was warm over the Mediterranean, and we're slightly. Um, comforted by the fact the Mediterranean Sea is a warm sea compared to the North Sea. So. At the time, we didn't know that uh, the race was developing. Um, and in hindsight, what happened was that these three decided to go in their own valley a bit lower than we did. Uh, we decided to keep above the Mistral because we wanted to keep out of the turbulence of it. I was told by one of this, that balloon there, the Austrian balloon, uh, that he had, um, I think it was 100 kilometers an hour he was doing at night down the Rhone Valley. Uh, And that's why these guys were actually way ahead. They were very fast down that Rhone Valley. The only problem was that they were too fast and they missed this left turn to go to Spain. So these guys here, this pack, were actually in very good shape if they would carried on flying. They could possibly get back to the Spanish coast. What happened in the end was these three landed in Algeria. And Algeria was out of the competition area. So, uh, And I have lots of stories about them coming in because just before they got to the Algerian coast, uh, the wind changed. And uh, they really couldn't get into the coast in the last 10 miles. They could see land, but they couldn't get there. And they were very worried. And I had uh, conveyed to me some, some very um, sort of worried uh, messages. Did I know anything about the weather there? But they talked to a weatherman eventually. And all three of them managed to land in Algeria. Uh, the only thing was they were told to land near a police station because apparently the area they were landing in Algeria was where the terrorists are, and they were likely to be kidnapped as hostages. So, Anyway, they, they landed fine, and all the people, locals were friendly, and they didn't land near police stations, and they got, got back okay. These guys landed there in the end, uh, and this guy landed in Sard- Sardinia, and uh, he had to land because he wasn't allowed to fly VFR over Italy at night. So he ended up landing there. Anyway, the rest of the pack's here, and I'm just there. So, and that was the final thing. And the bottom there is the picture of Algeria when they landed in Algeria. So, and landing in Minorca is another story as well, because it's got very small fields, and it's got a very big mountain before as they came in, so they had to go over the mountain and then descend quickly to get into that island. And they had lots of bruises on them. So, we're now on Monday, 8 o'clock, uh, sunrise. We're still over the sea. We're only doing 5 to 10 knots. We're crawling along. It's 24 hours since we last saw land, 33 hours of flying. Uh, we're skirting the Spanish coast just off Barcelona. We, just, we did a wonderful um, flight right round the uh, Barcelona airspace. And um, uh, the controller really wasn't bothered about us because we were just one mile outside his airspace all the time. And um, at one point, I thought I was going to go in there, so he got hold of him. He said, Oh, yeah, don't worry about it. So uh, Midnight on Sunday, the tracks want us more to the west, uh, so I think you saw from that previous track. So finally, this is uh, about uh, on the Monday, later on in the day, we see land in sight, and you can see it sort of got a bit cloudy and that sort of thing. And at the time, there were some wonderful thunderstorms going on in mainland Spain because you're talking about September. It's still warm over there. And we're nearly there, but we was still, and I keep on thinking, is that wind going to change? I didn't realize it would change for the other guys, but, and eventually, about, after 32 hours over the sea, 41 hours of flying, we came back into the Spanish coast. Uh, we had a little bit of a problem here trying to fly in the wind fly through the night, so I nearly landed because I really couldn't, wasn't going to play around at five knots in a sort of um, wind that, um, at night trying to get over the Spanish mountains that we were going to go through. But eventually, we did get the right wind. Uh, We went up high, and the the problem with going up high, there was a band that was going back out to sea, and of course, you didn't want to do that. And in gas balloon, you don't want to experiment too much because we're trying to do this competitively. So if we flow out sand to go up to test it, and it's not there, then we have to valve to come down again. But we found out, um, we talked to our MET guys, and uh, we we were told the band would be at 6,000 feet, and fortunately, it was. So, just more pretty pictures of the coast coming into Spain, and uh, I'd quite like to have gone to the beaches here, but... Um, And there we are, we've made the decision to carry on flying, so this is now Monday night. Uh, We've been flying since Saturday, uh, going inland into the hills, and this is a picture of the hills. And again, it's not easy terrain to land in, so you don't want to have an emergency over there, so you have to be very clear when you go into that night that you've made the decision to carry on. And just some more pretty pictures. Uh, thunderhead dissipating. We could see it in the distance, so it was dissipating, so I was happy. Um, I did check whether the next day the forecast had any um, thunder happening, and they said not before three, or 2 or 3 o'clock. They thought it would be fairly stable. So it meant that if we did need to land in the morning, we should be fine, theoretically. Uh, Spanish mountains, 6,000 feet. Uh, they were, we were at 6,000 feet. The, the mountains were... Um, we ended up having to go higher because I think some of the mountains were higher than that. And the weather's beginning to settle. So, uh, sunset on the Monday evening. Just views from the balloon. And of course, you're in this peaceful balloon. There's no sound. Um, it's no burner. Nothing. It's just absolutely amazing. And that's just to show you how the race is progressing. Uh, the one, there's one which was in the sky. Did get to come into. Um, this the Americans and then this is the pack coming in here, and we're just a bit north of here. We, we didn't quite go fast enough in that Rhone Valley to get those. Uh, that's me sleeping, just so I put that one in so I can sleep okay. Put in a picture of a cow. The reason we put in the picture of a cow was because I saw him on the way back, and uh, the cowbells, uh, during the night you could hear the cowbells, absolutely amazing. You know, sat in the balloon hearing the cowbells and the church bells, the church clock, so... Uh, This is sunrise the next day, 7 o'clock. On the YouTube video, it shows this cloud just sort of streaming over here. Absolutely beautiful. 56 hours of flying. Uh, You wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Absolutely amazing. Uh, We've gone up to 9,000, 10,000 feet by this stage for various reasons. And uh, there's Anne with the oxygen. We can use nasal cannulas or you can use an actual mask. Um, We're trying out both just in case we decide to go higher. That's to show you what the basket looks like after two days of living in it with some of our stuff stuck around. We also had a satellite phone so we could talk to um, uh, our air traffic, not air traffic, the people on our ground. Um, The satellite phone works some of the time. Your mobile phone doesn't tend to work when you're at that altitude. So this is us, and they're just showing where we've got to now, which is this star down here. And uh, I got a text message on my mobile phone to say that uh, if we carried on, then we might get a woman's world record. And I'd gone into this race not to get a world record, but to try and win the Gordon Bennett. And uh, um, so we're flying and we're thinking, OK, well, that'd be nice to get, but let's just concentrate on getting a good flight and continuing. Um, And this is just the air map, just to show you. uh, There's a lake here, and in the next slide, I think we see the lake. So that's that lake which was on the map, and that's where we are. It's got a nice dam, and uh, uh, again on the YouTube video, there was a a town, I think, on the next Oxbow Lake just down there. It's just very pretty. We don't have to do anything. Bloom's flying itself, and um, we're just avoiding the danger areas because we're going into a danger area. Oh, the Jefferson maps tell you there's a danger area there, but they don't tell you what the danger is, so... (laughs) We found, I found, and the GPS doesn't either, so and uh, so we had to phone up somebody to find out exactly what the danger area was. Solar panels, there were masses of solar panels. And then this happened at midday, which was uh, an F-18 fly past. And apparently our air traffic control had told... Uh, um, the, the race control, had told the Spanish military or somebody that, because they were good pals or something, that there were two lone females in the air and um, <laughs> they really should go and have a look at them. And of course, with Latin blood, they came round. And, and this fly pass was absolutely incredible. The noise of that jet in the basket, you just, uh, you know, I, to this day, I took some photographs on, I, I took an, um, a video camera with me, and the, the jet, Um, didn't look very close in that at all because of course it was a wide angled lens whereas this photograph shows probably a bit more realistically how close that actual jet was and it was just absolutely incredible, so this flew past us and uh, so we knew we got the world record so that was great and there is a clip of this but I think I'll skip it and uh, come back to it Uh, Spanish windmills, (laughs) getting towards the end of the flight now. We uh, uh, flew over um, um, Don Quixote-type windmills. You could see them very well from the air, but I didn't take any pictures, so this is the ground picture. We went back to have a look at them. Um, Just nice countryside, lots of vineyards, lots of olive groves, and uh, easy landing now in the middle of the day. We're out of those hills. Anne's very fair-skinned, so she found it really difficult. She found the night really easy. It wasn't too cold for her, but the day was the hardest part for her, so um, she was too hot in the Spanish sun. Notice the handbag there, by the way. Uh, Well, yes, well, we're flying along, and um, um, uh, I'm going to go through the next night. I... um, fully intended to go through uh, the Tuesday night, but unfortunately what happened was that we'd been throwing out quite a lot of sand to compensate for the night cooling. And uh, just the, as the sun was setting, I decided that to get over the mountain range we were approaching, uh, we'd got something like 40, no, 80 kilos of sand left, which would be, should be more than enough to go through the night, but I was still using it uh, to compensate for the nighttime cooling. And I'd also have to go up to 8,000 feet to clear this range of mountains. So very last moment having decided to go in through the night, told everybody we were going through the night, I changed my mind, but I'm a woman so I can do that, and uh, we came down and landed immediately, and fortunately I landed just before this range of hills, and uh, in a very, very good field, it was a fantastic field, and um, that's the landing. Uh, the basket's there. Again, on the YouTube video, you can see it. It's more daylight um, when you land the balloon. And unfortunately, I can't show you the landing because, of course, I'm busy doing it. And it was a last-minute decision to do it. So, um, and it was a, a great field. It's very long, and uh, we came over uh, two quite big villages. And uh, everybody in the village was following us. It was fantastic. As we came in, approached over a railway line and o- over a major road, and landed the other side. in this field, which must have been about two or three kilometers long, and there were some uh, black cows in the very end of the field, which um, I didn't worry about because they were miles away. They really were a long way away, and uh, I wanted to be near a road so we could get easy access. Uh, the landing was, was, I would say, perfect because um, we didn't, you know, I don't know if you'd call like greasing in a bit like a, an airplane equivalent where you just sort of um, um, just come in and the, uh, the basket just... Um, slows down very carefully. We had about 15 knots on landing, but it didn't feel like that at all. And we threw what we call a trail rope out, and that helps a lot as well. So, the only thing was with the landing is I, I did the perfect landing, stood up, but I also pulled this parachute line, which I wasn't particularly familiar with, and of course it locked, went a bit too much um, hydrogen for my liking. So, of course, the final bit was a, a thud, because I'd vented it just a bit too hard but we're happily down after 69 hours and 22 minutes of flying. And I got out the balloon, and the thing was I nearly fell over because I hadn't realized that I'd been stuck in this balloon and basket, which had obviously been moving, and the ground was flat and solid, and I just... It was a bit like seasickness. I always just found it very difficult to stand up and, and didn't have any problems, but for the next three days, I had real problems walking upstairs and anything like that, so... And that's us. The farmer was wonderful. He, he was out there immediately and uh, he eventually, he came and bought us a beer, he came and bought us Spanish chorizo and things like that. So that's where we've landed. Uh, it's just south of Madrid, south of Toledo in Toledo. So, And that was a farmer. He was happy. We went and gave him a, a bottle of whiskey, so that was good. And uh, that's, some people ask me what it is, but that's the trailer and that's it all packed up and back in the trailer. Um, We packed it up that evening, just put it in, and then repacked it the next day. Uh, The only problem with that field was that those nice black cows in the field, of course, being Spain, weren't cows. (laughs) They were bulls which is why the farmer came out, because he said they're bulls. So uh, anyway, uh, we packed up in the dark. The bulls didn't bother us at all. If they had been cows, they would have been all over the envelope. The, the bulls really were not bothered, and uh, the, because the farmer was there, we were perfectly safe. So. But we did go back the next day to uh, take a picture of them. Um, We were very lucky. We found... um, uh, We'd landed at sort of... I I think it was about 8.30 in the evening, and by the time... These guys followed us, the two guys there. um, Well, they didn't really follow us. They went on holiday in different places of Spain, actually, because we were 32 hours over the sea, so they just went to some... Nice resort in the mountains, apparently. And um, anyway, just to cut a long story short, um, um, uh, we found this great place to go that evening. Uh, we turned up at something like stupid, like 11 o'clock at night in uh, Castle Royale, R- Rural, and uh, we got given this wonderful um, uh, reception by uh, the owner. So we stayed there for two nights in the end.
1: And of course, you had
0: to have paella, so they co- c- cooked us paella. And uh, the next day, we didn't fly through that night, this decision. The next day, at 6 o'clock, uh, well, 6, 6.20 UTC, everybody else has landed. So, the one that was doing that sneaky thing down here is the American balloon. He landed here. Uh, the Swiss balloon has come and landed here. Yeah, I was going to say, look, he did a night landing. Um, the French is still flying. So, this is the day next... We decided not to fly, and I guess we could have flown. But um, anyway, the French is still flying. And... Um, What I want to show you is the French landed just there. And so what you've got, you've got every taking off from Geneva, you've got one in Sardinia, three in Algeria, two in Mallorca, this is the other, this is Hempelman-Adams, I beat Hempelman-Adams, and uh, the French in another American balloon, and then you've got these three, that have gone the furthest possible distance you could go in this particular race, given the, geomet- the the boundaries of the competition area, landing with just over, I don't know, 50 to 100 kilometres from each other. So when you say balloons can't be controlled, there is a degree of control. So uh, we ended up coming sixth in the end, landing there. So because it's our second time in a gas balloon, I think we're going to compete this year. and better that score, I guess. Um, But uh, the rest of them are all men. And uh, there was a female co-pilot in the American balloon down here. But it's just fantastic. These guys, the Lay Brothers, sorry, uh, uh, there's a French pilot called the Lay Brothers. They won the Gordon Bennett three years running. And uh, one of them is retired now, but uh, um, his brother was flying in this balloon. So they're just very good at it. uh, So So that's the uh, thing. That's Anne and I at the end of the uh, with all our kit um, taken at the castle Rural and uh, first aid kit and everything. And this is the trail rope, which we throw out um, just there. Um, that was the uh, um, cartoon that was appeared in uh, the local paper when I first started doing the Geller and Bennett gas balloon race. And uh, if you're interested to see it, it's a 10-minute video, but it goes quite quickly. Um, if you look on YouTube and put in gas balloon world record or women's balloon flight, it should come up with it. So, um, I'll just finish with that one really. When you fly, fly with a man, male balloon uh, pilot, sorry, male pilot pilot, you can do that for ballasting. So. And, and that's when I went to um, uh, Canada. So, So, thank you for coming. Thank you. Uh maybe. I think, think so. You should be able to. I should have been, I didn't want to. Say. Um I'll do the takeoff first. Okay. Yep, this is the takeoff. Sure. Right. Yeah. This is the takeoff.